Wait, so you guys are literally recording down the hall from each other today? Yeah, Stephen. If you could figure out the technology to allow us to record in the same room, it wouldn't be an issue. (laughs) So tell me, Abe, what is the most annoying thing that Shale does in the office? You know, it's hard to describe the most annoying, but I'd like to refer (laughs) to Shale as the Yeti of 101 Mission. Because he's he's always absent. He's always traveling in the New York office out to see his LPs, maybe some companies. And I have the the dubious distinction of actually overlooking the front door. So I am the office greeter. I get to see Shale come and go whenever he wants, which is, you know, maybe once every couple weeks I see his Yeti-ish face in the the office. (laughs) I like to keep things mysterious, you know. I don't want (laughs) you to feel like you can rely on me. Do you guys each have a bell that you ring? That when you close a deal to intimidate the other person? Well, the problem with that is that we'd be ringing it like every month. Oh, <laughs> you know, we pop a bubbly water like any good VC would. We, we pop open a LaCroix. What we actually do is we go to the ring, which is, of course, an EIP portfolio company, and we ring the bell just to make sure that it pops up on That's Shale right. and Cassie's phone. <laughs> I keep forgetting that the ring uh, is a video doorbell, and uh, once in a while, Abe just starts talking to me through the doorbell, and it freaks me out. That has happened. Well, coming up, we ring two very different kind of early stage investors. They put their differences aside and tell us why clean tech venture capital is back. First, we can't talk about investment without mentioning our sponsor, Wonder Capital. Wonder is the leading investment platform for commercial solar, and it got there by developing a technology platform that makes it easier to get money into commercial projects. If you want to get your project financed fast, go to wondercapital.com slash GTM. That's wonder with a U, wondercapital.com slash GTM. This is The Interchange, conversations about the future of energy from Green Tech Media. Welcome. I'm Stephen Lacey, a contributing editor with GTM. My co-host and podcast limited partner is Shail Khan, the VP of Research and Strategy at Energy Impact Partners, the senior VP of Research and Strategy. We can't forget the senior. Shail, hello. Don't forget my my senior title. Hi, Stephen. Um, you know, it is interesting that you call me a limited partner in this podcast venture. I do feel like I've invested a lot of time and energy into you. So <laughs> I think it's appropriate. I'm waiting for the money. <laughs> yeah, that's the part that's coming later. Well, over the last couple of weeks, we put out a call to our listeners and we asked them to give us ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts and to give us some creative reviews. And you definitely heeded the call and we got some really great descriptions of the show. And so Shale and I, uh, over the last couple of days, have gone through our favorite ones and selected the best review. And that person is going to get a free subscription to GTM Squared. So I woke up this morning. I don't know about you, Shale, but I need my needed my ego stroked a little bit. And so we decided to choose the one that I think really described our personalities the best. So this is from SOJ777. I'm not sure if that's like uh, an inmate somewhere, <laughs> but SOJ777, you have the best review. So here it goes. Stephen and Shale provide the rare one-two of great entertainment and powerful information. Hmm, I like that. You like that, Shale? That's pretty good. Who's the entertainment and who's the information, I wonder? Uh, I'm going to leave that to our audience to decide. I have my opinions. (laughs) (laughs) 
They don't sugarcoat the disturbing data underlying the climate crisis, but they are usually quite able to avoid despair with interesting insights that keep some cautious optimism alive. Yes, yes, we do that for our own mental health. Shale blends his super quaint brain with an easy vernacular to break wait, down wait, complex wait, wait. numbers. I, I read, I read that one. It's a super quant brain. Oh, quant, not a super quaint. <laughs> <laughs> I have been told my brain is quaint a couple times. <laughs> Super but... quaint Yeti brain. <laughs> Shale, br- <laughs> Shale blends his super quant brain with an easy vernacular to break down complex numbers and get to the heart of where the problems and solutions are. Stephen is always able to get great guests on the pod. That's you, Abe. And seamlessly connect seemingly disparate global events into what they mean for the energy transition and climate movement. 100% audio energy. I love it. This is weird. I don't know that we should be reading compliments to ourselves. <laughs> Would you prefer me well, to read those to you? Yes. I'm yes. happy to. Yeah, exactly. Please. We, we need the dulcet tones of, of Abe Yakel. <laughs> so anyway, SOJ777, whoever you are, send me an email to postscriptaudio at gmail.com, and I'm going to hook you up with a free membership to Squared. And that other voice you heard at the top of the show is Abe Yakel, a managing partner at Congruent Ventures. Abe, welcome. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you, Stephen? Excellent. Well, we've invited you here because Cleantech VC is back, folks. According to numbers from Bloomberg New Energy Finance, 2018 global cleantech VC and private equity investment grew 127% over the previous year, amounting to $9.2 billion around the world. That is the highest total since 2010. So years after the great venture capital bust of 2012, when VCs uh, ran from clean technologies after getting burned by some high-profile bad investments, we're seeing a new wave of activity. Corporates are getting in on the action. Oil majors, utilities, and tech billionaires are too. And there's a wide range of new funds focusing on software-specific companies to the startups addressing the hardest hardware and manufacturing challenges. So is this spurt of activity different from the last one? Shale, do we have a license to be bullish? I think we do, uh, actually. I think that there's both a, a, a wave of new innovation in the space that warrants investment and capital largely available now for good ideas. I mean, rarely, I think, do we see at this point really good ideas with great teams that just can't find capital to grow. So I, I think it's it's a good time again. So, Abe, I just gave a very brief description of the common consensus of of what happened over the last few years in cleantech VC. Do you agree with that take? And what's your perspective on on what happened as we saw venture capital rise and fall in clean technologies? I do generally agree with that take. And, And perhaps I can digress and give you a little bit of my history as it relates to the sector. I think it's actually a reasonable proxy. Uh, I've been investing in clean tech for the last 15 years, starting in early 2004 uh, with what was then probably the largest stage agnostic clean tech venture firm called Rockport Capital, started out in Boston. That was 2004. Uh, we were what I used to call the stepchild of, of venture capital. Nobody really cared about us. If we didn't make too much noise. We'd kind of be off in the corner doing our own thing. There were a couple other investors out there that, that were interested uh, in, in the sector. Uh, and then we proceeded through 2005, 2006, and people started waking up and paying attention. This is about the time of the inconvenient truth from Al Gore. All of a sudden, there was a dog pile, 
in cleantech venture. And we were in Boston. I, I had the distinction of being shipped out to the West Coast to open up the Sand Hill office for Rockport in 2007. And from about 2007 until the financial crisis hit in uh, mid to late 2008, I think th- there's some s- statistics on this, but I, I believe cleantech ended up being one of the largest categories in venture overall. And if we put that in today's context, that's uh, pretty amazing, given that we're still a rounding error in overall cleantech venture. Financial crisis hit. Everybody ran away from venture broadly. People trickled back into traditional tech investing. At the same time, there were a number of very high-profile investments that had been written up, uh, as in the values of those companies had been grossly inflated on the books from all of the dogpile of capital going into the sector, even if those companies were not into revenue. Those all disappeared. The burns were too high. Many companies exploded in spectacular fashion. Uh, and the traditional venture community continued to go back to their knitting and invest in, in traditional tech startups. And that really kind of brings us to that 2010 timeframe. And there has been a slow rebuilding of the community over the last eight years. I think now we're, we're finally seeing a, a relative amount of health. I think that differs by stage in the way that we think about it, at least. Uh, but there's there's finally some real health coming back into the ecosystem, and I'm delighted to be a part of this next wave of investing. Do you think that in that first wave, the the boom and bust? I mean, I've characterized it before. There, there was a, a a sort of series of um, I guess cool takes that suggested that what we could learn from that first boom and bust in in the clean tech wave in the 2006 through 2010 or 12 timeframe is that clean tech. Uh, is not a good fit for VC, or rather VC is not a good fit for clean tech. And my counter to that was largely like, look, if you actually look at what happened, all those companies that you mentioned that had too high a burn and that collapsed in spectacular fashion, like largely they fit, there were two groups of bets that VCs made. They made big bets on thin film solar technology and they made big bets on biofuels. And both of those bets broadly speaking, turned out to be bad. But that's where like the majority of that huge wave of capital went during that period. And so I I have a hard time separating out just those bets being the wrong bets and there being a herd mentality amongst the VC community and making those bets versus the sector, something inherent to clean tech that made it not a fit versus the timing, which as you mentioned, we had a financial crisis right in the middle of that. So how do you think about like those three factors and how much each one contributed to the first boom bust cycle? I think if you look at the dollars invested in the sectors, what you would find, and I haven't pulled this data recently, but what you would find is that the preponderance of dollars, so the dollar weighted average would have gone into solar and biofuels. And those were the most spectacular explosions and implosions of those companies. If you delete those and you look at all other investments I think what you'd find is perhaps not quite venture-grade returns, but you would find at least positive returns to the venture funds and our investors, our limited partners. There's a totally separate class if you go into kind of the infrastructure investing, which, of course, as an early-stage venture fund, we don't touch. But those investments have ended up working out disproportionately well, I think, for for their investors. Yeah, absolutely. And we're seeing some of that, you know, interesting questions around that right now, for example, in PG&E, because PG&E is going into bankruptcy court and there are debates about what's going to happen with these legacy PPAs that they've got. 
And the thing that it reminds you is that PG&E is sitting on and paying for a bunch of power purchase agreements for solar projects for which the price is in the like high teens of cents per kilowatt hour, you know, like more than double, way more than double what you would see today in these early projects. I mean, admittedly, the technology was more expensive at the time, um, but these early projects were commanding really high prices. So the infrastructure investors were doing great. Yeah, I think they were particularly doing great as you think about the forward curves of their actual procurement cycles. They got those PPAs and then two to three years out, they actually built them. And when you built them, it turned out they were a lot less than everybody expected. So a lot of people are in the money. I think we could digress for 10 or 20 minutes on PG&E as it relates <laughs> to our whole world, but perhaps we should not. I think I think we should actually come back to it. Um, as part of a broader question around around what happens in in shocks and you know shocks to the economy shocks to shocks to utilities, but before we do, so you mentioned that the there's this sort of slow rebuilding of the community. One of the things that I've been interested to see as that rebuilding has occurred is the terminology that the community uses. So I think I think at least my perception is that what happened is that clean tech was the term everybody agreed upon in the first wave. And then after the collapse, you know, it became a term that was sort of allergic um, or caused an allergy rather for at least the sort of mainstream Silicon Valley VCs. And then a lot of the the newly emergent players in the space have been using more diverse and different terminology. So, you know, we at EIP, a lot of the time we'll talk about energy tech um, and others will talk about, you know, sustainability, life cycle management, various other iterations on that. First of all, what do you guys at Congruent, the new fund that you um, help lead, what do you guys call it? And what was the thinking behind that? Yeah, we call it sustainability. Uh, I can talk about why we do that. But just before I do so, I can talk a bit about what we actually focus on. So most broadly, we invest in any startup that is focused on having an positive impact on the energy and resource envelope. We'll do hardware, we'll do software, we'll do services. As long as we can see a venture-grade return, a company's fair game. Uh, And we tend to categorize that in, in four areas. The first is in urbanization and mobility. The second is in the energy transition. The third is in food and ag. And the fourth is in industrial and supply chain innovation. So it's really a quite broad view. Um, It's much beyond just energy. Uh, I'd say uh, uh, on the deal count, we've done 17 deals since our founding about two years ago. So it's been uh, pretty busy around here with three of us. Only five of those companies we would categorize as kind of in the hardcore energy bucket. And... So you went out to raise this fund and started talking about your sustainability-focused fund. What was the reaction from LPs and prospective LPs? Why did you pick sustainability as the frame? Um, And do you think that your experience reflects something broader about how we think about this this world as it reemerges? I think it may, and it's as much in marketing, I think, as in reality. But I think the key here is that the mentality around the limited partner community, when they made commitments to traditional venture funds, uh, it's all about the financial returns, typically. uh, And that's a broad-based asset allocation story. And in the 2008 crisis, what ended up happening is that a lot of those venture funds went from the mode of having to place a couple bets for their LPs into what became known as clean tech, 
to trying to move away from anything that had the name cleantech associated with it. The reality is many of those venture firms still believed in some of the core tenets. And if you didn't call it cleantech, then you kind of got a pass uh, from your partners and potentially from your limited partners as you think about raising future funds. So cleantech turned into a bad word in the kind of institutional asset allocator world that trickled down to the venture funds. When you bring the cleantech word back up in the limited partner community, there are still echoes from the past. If you talk about sustainability, it has a completely different tone to it, uh, even if many of the same tenants exist. I'm so struck by that, that like you could you could support one company over another or uh, put your money into a fund because of the differences in words. Is that, is that like a common thing? I think it is. I mean, you know, let's abstract this from our sector, right? I mean, think about how much money has been deployed into things because they say they're AI or machine learning or blockchain. You know, the I don't think that anybody makes a decision purely based on that. But, you know, you you develop a first impression. It's like, you know, a startup needs to come up with a good elevator pitch and they have 30 seconds to give it. Like you, you, that wording matters because it signals something about where you fit in the broader landscape. And, and so I think it does matter how we frame this stuff. And it probably does have a direct impact on your ability to get funding, whether you're a VC trying to get money from, from a limited partner or whether you're a startup trying to get money from a VC. I think we have to give the limited partners their credit. They're very sophisticated, very good asset allocators. The way of dealing with asset allocation historically is you look at you know, 10 to 30 year returns in a given asset class and you think about how you allocate to that asset class based on those historical returns. That's true for venture. Cleantech venture or sustainability investing is a sub-asset allocation of venture. And when you think through the impacts of that, Sometimes when you've had a bad experience, people just want to walk away. So it really takes a forward-thinking LP to be able to think through what do the next 10 to 15 years look like and not look at the last 10 to 15 years in terms of returns uh, for, for their fiduciary responsibilities. There are a lot of LPs that are actively thinking about doing that. The University of California is one of the largest endowments in the country. They have a sustainability focus uh, and are actively trying to deploy assets in a forward-looking manner. And we have to give credit to to their thinking around that, I think. So we're talking about um, th- how the investment thesis has changed a bit and shifted based on perception. How has the landscape actually shifted for startups across the areas that you're investing money into? Right. So if we just look at energy in particular, there's... There's, you know, uh, cloud computing that can uh, help companies with their IT. Uh, they can give them a lot more power when they're, you know, building software or analytics tools. You have a lot more manufacturing partnerships and the ability to get contract manufacturing. There's just a lot more facilities out there that startups can use to test equipment, um, test processes. So the infrastructure. And resources, there's a lot more of them available for startups uh, in energy and in all the other ancillary sectors that you're focusing on. Can you describe that a little bit more articulately than I can? Like, what's different for startups? I don't know if I can do it more articulately, but I can certainly (laughs) try. 
I, I would bucket that in three areas. The first would be, as you already referenced, the cost to create a company. And many people cite the tech stack, especially for IT and tech-related companies. I think you also referenced some of the outsourced manufacturing facilities that exist today, and there are many. That's true for really any thin film coding. Kodak has an amazing setup there. You can do the same thing for battery companies. You can do the same thing even for biofuels companies if that's what you want to do. Uh, you can find much cheaper ways to, to prove out your techno-economic model, whether your product or system works at a reasonable cost. That's the first group. There's a sub-bullet to that, which actually relates to the entire economy and ecosystem, particularly out in Silicon Valley and in other innovation hubs like Boston and New York. The ability to bring on relatively cheap IT systems, accounting, legal resources, and understand how to actually launch a company, it has just gotten fundamentally cheaper to start a company. Uh, Josh and I would not be able to run congruent with with really just the two of us and Saloni joining half-time uh, with no other resources without a lot of these tools that we use today. And we have the budget to be able to put that together. Many companies that are living on a shoestring do not. The second area I would focus on would be the talent and culture. I think millennials get a bad rap. I, my view is very different. Uh, millennials tend to really believe in combining their work and their principles. And that is coming out in spades in their focus on sustainability, the environment, and energy. When people graduate from college today, they want to go and start something. And they want to start something that matters. When I was coming out of college, I guess, 16, 17 years ago, going into investing was really interesting. Going into private equity, banking, that was the thing everybody was focused on. Today, the best talent in our generation is coming out and trying to start companies. I think that's a total game changer. And I think the third piece that I would focus on relates to really the second piece, which is it's pretty hard to ignore, if you don't have your head in the sand, the effects of climate change. That was not true 10 or 15 years ago. Everybody realizes that there's a problem, and now it's about how you address that. Uh, that is, everybody who is focused on believing in real science. Coming up, where is this renaissance coming from? Who are the players that are putting money into this space and surveying the landscape of startups? First, though, do you have a community solar project that needs financing? Uh, a lot of utilities developers, IPPs are getting into community solar, but they have offerings that are really lumpy. Uh, they're confusing for customers. And if you're a developer, you're often frustrated by traditional financiers, slow processes and inflexible offerings. Well, our sponsor, Wonder Capital, can help. It has just launched a progressive new community solar offering dedicated to financing projects in ways that other lenders just can't do. For example, with Wonder, community solar projects can have up to 100% residential offtake and those hefty termination penalties, long-term contracts, and subscriber FICO scores, they're not required. Head on over to wondercapital.com slash GTM. That's wonder with a U, wondercapital.com slash GTM, to submit your community solar projects today. So let's talk about this new wave that we see emerging as 
Stephen mentioned at the beginning, you know, this this boom in capital being deployed into quote unquote clean tech startups now. I'm interested in who the new players are on the VC side. It, you know, I think it's a different group of VCs than we saw in that first wave. The first wave was when the Kleiner Perkins of the world um you know, introduced the Green Growth Fund and the the big name brand Silicon Valley VCs were driving, I think, a lot of the, the capital. And while there's still some of that today, my perception is that there's a new wave of entrants who are the primary sources of capital for clean tech startups today, particularly strategics of various stripes. So, you know, my fund Energy Impact Partners is sort of an example of this. We're a financial investor, but we're backed by a group of strategics. We have 14 utility LPs uh, who are participating with us and um, in this journey that we're on. But setting aside our fund, I mean, there are a whole bunch of utilities who themselves are directly investing. Some of our partners like National Grid and Evergy Ventures, but also a lot of the European utilities, think NG, Energy, Statcraft, and, and many others. Um, there are the oil and gas majors who we've talked about many times who are very actively investing, particularly Shell, Total, BP, Chevron has a new fund. Um, and, you know, I, I think strategics are, they're an interesting new group. I wonder, Abe, one, do you agree that strategics are, are sort of the, the newly emergent dominant players in this space? And and two, how do you feel about that as someone who's um, probably has some portfolio companies who are going out for their next round that might see strategics as, as investors? I absolutely see strategics as a important part of the ecosystem and perhaps at the moment the dominant part of the ecosystem in fact, we have three strategics as limited partners of ours, including Shell, uh, ABB, and uh, Thailand State Energy Company, PTT. And they've been terrific partners for us. Uh, we also have a diversity of family offices as well as traditional asset allocators. So we've got a bit of a mix as our own investors. I think the challenge is, is that there are actually very few funds that are focused on the sector that are primarily looking for venture-grade returns. There is a tremendous amount of capital that is now being focused on the sector from the likes of strategics, uh, family offices, impact capital, things of that nature. On one hand, I'm quite optimistic about that. Uh, on the other, I'd like to see some more traditional venture mentality applied to the sector. How come? What is it that you see as the, the mentality difference between the strategics who are participating now versus purely financial investors? I think there's a good amount of convergence between traditional venture and strategics these days. A lot of strategic funds are now being focused with a greater venture mentality. And that means that they're not looking for special deals. They're not looking for exclusivity when they invest. They are really looking to support these companies and entrepreneurs that they're backing to grow a real standalone company with the eye towards a potential acquisition down the road when those companies get to scale. A lot of those strategics have put together deal teams and compensation structures that make a lot of sense there. The reality for venture funds is that we really are focused on backing the best entrepreneurs trying to build companies that matter and to build them into standalone companies out there in the ecosystem. Strategics have a different view, which is eventually most of this that succeeds, they'd of course like to own in some way, shape, or form. The other group that I think is interesting is to some degree, uh, I think, born out of what was viewed as the failure in the first wave, which was, you know, 
in in the wake of the collapses of Solyndra and Mia Soleil and all the biofuels companies and things like that, I think there was a bit of navel gazing in the VC community that sort of came out the other side saying, well, look, energy is tough. The time horizons are very long. The technology is difficult. It's a highly regulated market. You know, it's just not how venture is supposed to work. And so uh, I think a couple of things happened. One, strategics emerged, um, and they can take a, a different view on it. Like you said, they don't have the same return requirements exactly. Two, there's been a, a wave of um, investors focused more on software and services, so they're just avoiding that that problematic part of VC investing. But then third, there's um, a few new investors who are going sort of head-on at that problem. So the perfect example of which would be Breakthrough Energy Ventures, the the big billion-dollar fund backed by Bill Gates and a bunch of other billionaires um, who are specifically trying to tackle you know the biggest technology problems facing carbon mitigation or climate change mitigation. Um, and, you know, particularly hard tech taking a, a long time horizon and so on. So do you think that that, is, that bifurcation of different investor types to solve the different types of problems that we have in the clean tech landscape is sort of the right way to, to address the space? I do think it's the right way to address the space. I, I would also suggest that our theory of operation is that the only way to create a truly sustainable growing ecosystem is to produce traditional financial returns. And that's really how we have structured our fund. We are focused on things that matter, but we need to focus on generating venture-grade returns in order to convince large asset allocators to commit more capital to sustainability-oriented venture funds. So on one hand, I think it is terrific to see some of these organizations and individuals apply capital to address climate change. There's nothing but good that comes out of that. On the other hand, I would love to see some more traditional asset allocators commit to traditionally structured venture funds that are looking for a financial return, because that is really what's going to create self-propagation throughout the ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, that. I think that reflects um, well on how EIP has structured ourselves. We, we have this bunch of strategic LPs. We also have financial investors as, as part of the fund. We, we ourselves are financial investors for, I think, that same reason which is at the end of the day, you know, this is going to be a sustainable growing sector to the extent that it proves to be a good sector to invest in, um, in addition to being a strategic one. So I want to talk a little bit about the exit landscape for all these companies that you're investing in, Abe, and that we're investing in. The other big knock on Cleantech VC over its broad history is that it's, it's hard to count on more than two hands the number of really big successful exits in the space. We've had not that many IPOs. There have been some big acquisitions, but you know, not not enough to um, justify the entire sector. And I think that's been the case that the folks have made against um, venture investment in, in this space. Do you think that, one, is that true, or are people just not looking broad enough at, at exits? And two, either way, do you think that things are different now? It is somewhat true. I think ignoring the fact that the returns within cleantech venture have been challenged would be a little bit silly. Everybody loves to trot out the list of the four or five companies that really have had positive impact to their investors when they exit. And I don't think you need me to do that again. I will say I saw some data at one point around Chinese exits within the same ecosystem. And that is a much, much rosier story for a variety of reasons, obviously. But 
if we just focus on U.S. investments historically, it hasn't been brilliant. I think that allows us to fall into the same trap that I was just discussing related to limited partner mentality, which is if we only look at the last 10 or 15 years, we ignore the reality that we are in today. It is pretty dramatically different than it was 10 years ago. So I'm terribly optimistic about the next 10 to 15 years on returns. It's hard to get past the couple wins that we've had as a community in the last 10 years. How do you think about the state of the economy more broadly as it pertains to the investments that you're making and the and the companies in your portfolio? You know, we're we're sort of in year whatever it is now, 10 of a a pretty long bull market with a lot of economic growth and we're kind of what seems to be teetering on the edge of a possible downturn. Um, how much do you take that into account when you think about both who to invest in, how much money to give them, how to advise them to grow their businesses? I mean, you're, it, it, I'm interested to compare and contrast because you're investing much earlier stage than we are. So you may be investing in you know, a company with an idea and a few people. We typically are investing in, in companies with at least a couple million dollars in revenue. Uh, you, know, you could make a case that a downturn could affect either more, but I'm curious how you how much you think about that and how it affects your decisions. I do think about it pretty actively. I think my view on it uh, with my congruent hat on is that we we do invest in pre-seed seed and series A investments. So as you noted, we are very much focused on the earlier stage ecosystem. My general experience having watched companies both the early and the late stages over the last 15 years is that downturns and uh, capital drying up from the investment community tends to disproportionately affect those companies that have the highest burn rates. And those are usually later stage. That doesn't mean that an early stage company can't burn a lot of capital because that happens too. Uh, But from our perspective, uh, it does mean that when we invest in a company, we are very focused on supporting a company with limited dollars to make sure that they really prove out certain milestones that we look at. Uh, That can be around market, that can be around product, that can be around unit economics, Uh, It can be around many different things. Generally speaking, even in a moderate downturn, the Series A and Series B community, which we are most dependent on, usually doesn't take a massive hit. The venture community has a bit of a lag between when macro events hit and when they slow down deploying, unless there is a severe crisis uh, of an unexpected nature. When you get into the later stage investments, I think it does make a pretty big difference People stop buying companies, uh, as in companies stop buying companies. Capital dries up in in a lot of ways. So if you are investing for growth with a high burn rate, you have to moderate your growth and your burn rate to make sure that you can not get stuck with no cash on your balance sheet when you're a growth company. And I think it really can have a pretty big impact on those companies that are looking to either grow very significantly with large capital infusions or exit through an acquisition or an IPO. That's a very good segue into some of the questions that we got from folks on Twitter. And we got a question from Tim Leitner who asked about the right growth capital for companies in Congruent's portfolio. So he says, Abe is a great guest. Congruent is doing great things. Hey, congratulations, Abe. You're living up to the hype. Uh, <laughs> is the He asks, is the upswing in cleantech VC balanced by stage or are we overweighted in certain areas? Are we sure that pre-seed and seed companies of today will be able to find the right growth capital in the near future? So recession aside, I think it's just a broader question of where that capital is going to come from for uh, your portfolio companies. Any additional response to that? 
You'd expect me to say this, of course, but there really aren't very many companies and funds that are focused on the pre-seed, seed, and Series A venture slug. Uh, I can count them on one hand after I've cut off two of my fingers. Um, and that includes Emily's recent announcement of the Powerhouse Fund, which I'm delighted to have as part of the ecosystem. If you go down the stage ladder and you look past to Series B, Series C, Series D, you have folks like the Yeti down the hall here with Shell. <laughs> you've got some other groups, Clear Sky. You've got G2VP, Activate, Entertech, and others that tend to like to invest in these companies after they uh, prove out a real revenue model. I would also like to say strategics have an easier time investing in companies that look like they have a proven revenue model versus pre-revenue. And that means that oftentimes you can more easily raise real capital after you've gone from zero to one, after you have product in market, after you've proven your unit economics uh, and that there is demand for a product. So from a traditional venture perspective, I would say there's a dearth of interest in the very early stages where we and a couple others said there is a great network of support uh, from groups like Tim Cyclotron Road Friends uh, and others, uh, many of which are supported by various programs through the government, where you can find capital and resources. Once you graduate from those areas, I think there is capital. It isn't always venture capital. Yeah, I do think that there's actually these days a really great network of incubators and accelerators that are either focused on clean tech or you know, have a broader focus, but will um, include clean tech companies. So you mentioned Cyclotron Road. I mean, there's also the, the you know, incubators and accelerators and shared workspaces like the Greentown Labs in Boston and Powerhouse's um, incubation efforts and Elemental Accelerator and all these other ones. But then there's the Y Combinators of the world that do actually take in um, a fair number of sort of clean tech oriented startups these days. There's the Techstars programs um, that are focused on this. You've got like Plug and Play, which has a, a sustainability program as well as a mobility one. So there's, I think there's a lot there. Um, but I think you're probably right that the, the where the biggest gap lies is after that and before you know, large before you can take a larger check size from somebody like EIP. So we have a question here from Susan Gladwin, who really explicitly asks a question that we addressed at the top of the show. And she asks, how has the definition of clean tech evolved, aka what is clean tech in 2019? So Abe, it sounds like for you, it's sustainability. And Shale, I want to get your explicit opinion on this as well. Um, is it safe to call yourself a clean tech company anymore? Uh, and what does that changing definition mean for startups pitching themselves? So again, let's more explicitly uh, answer that question. How has the definition of clean tech evolved? I wouldn't run away from the, the name clean tech. What I would add to it is this broad category of sustainability. And for me, that also includes things like consumer products that are more sustainably made and sourced. There's a huge amount of supply chain effects from everything that we consume every day. Uh, I don't think most people thought of that as clean tech historically, but back to the millennials of our, of our world, this is a really, really important piece of their daily lives. People don't like plastic bottles. There's something called clean beauty, which we're now exploring, which is using products that really don't have a negative impact on the environment or your own health. Uh, we, we made an investment in a sustainable closed-loop T-shirt company called For Days, 
that wouldn't historically have been categorized as clean tech, but for us certainly fits within the sustainability definition. Many more examples exist like that. I have an article draft that's been like sitting in my notes for the past six months called clean tech is back baby. Um, because I do think that the term has regained strength after years in the wilderness, it is reemerging. And I, I absolutely would, would not advise a company to shy away from calling themselves a clean tech company. Now the definition of clean tech, just like all these other terms that we use, smart cities, mobility, sustainability for that matter, it's, you know, the, the, um, the contours are ever shifting. Um, and the boundaries are not super clear as to what counts and what doesn't count. But I, but I think it's a useful frame right now for a whole wide array of companies that are using technology, using especially using the new tools of technologies that are available today that were not available a decade ago to make the world uh, more efficient and, and make the energy system or the agriculture system cleaner, less emitting, et cetera, lower costs and increase reliability. So I'm all for the term. So we can't talk about language without talking about the buzz phrases of the day. I think clean tech used to be one of the big buzz phrases, but now it's machine learning, artificial intelligence, blockchain. Blockchain in particular is really getting interjected into a lot of energy company pitch decks. So what do you guys think when you see a company putting those words into the first slide on their pitch deck? Abe? Blockchain is so 2018. In seriousness. <laughs> no, it really is. I was going to say the same thing. The, the number of pitch decks that include blockchain is down like 90% from 12 months ago. It is quite amazing, isn't it? The real question that comes up when I hear these questions is, or when I hear these pitches is, is, is this the hype of the day? Or is there some actual genuine applications in there? I, I did a quick count of Congruent's existing portfolio of 17 companies. Nine of them actually incorporate some machine learning, artificial intelligence, neural net work uh, within the overall company. Some of those have AI as a primary piece of their puzzle, and many are using them as kind of an ancillary or support piece of their puzzle or solution. So on one hand, if somebody walks in and drops blockchain and AI, and it has nothing to do with their product, then I want nothing to do with that company. Uh, on the other hand, many companies are actually showing up with genuine uses of, of AI in particular, which is quite fascinating. Yeah, I think about AI and machine learning, it, it is sort of unfair to AI and machine learning, but I think of them as similar to blockchain in that um, they're all tools. They're all relatively new tools that we can apply to solve a whole wide variety of problems. So if you want to call yourself uh, a company that uses AI to do X, that's great. You're using one of the new tools that's available. I'm interested in what X is and where the value lies there. Why is it that AI is the way to do it? Do you have some unique capacity to get it done in a way that other people don't? So the next set of questions is more important to me, but you know, frame yourself as a company that um, does X and uses AI rather than an AI company. And that probably, that frame maybe resonates with me a little bit more. It's hard to disagree with that. Abe Yukel is a managing partner at Congruent Ventures. Abe, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And now you can open up the door and yell down the hall to Shale before the Yeti runs out the door. Shale! <laughs> <laughs> I think you're the Yeti. <laughs> 
Shail Khan is the Senior VP of Research and Strategy at Energy Impact Partners. Thanks for your insights as always. And likewise, Stephen, great to speak with you. Yes, indeed. Well, folks, put your money on us. Give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hit us up on Twitter with some tweets. Uh, what do you think about this conversation? What is new and different about this next wave of VC? Are you a startup looking for money? Are you finding challenges? Are you finding new opportunities with this whole range of new funds and limited partners? Share your story and we'll probably retweet it and maybe we'll factor it into future discussions. You can find Shale there, me there. You can't find Abe there. Abe, why are you not on Twitter? Fake news. <laughs> You can't find Abe there, but you can find me and Shale there and The Interchange Show. And we will, of course, catch you next week. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Interchange, conversations about the future of energy from Green Tech Media. <laughs>